0: Here in this uh, third part of the six-part series called Not Invisible, we encounter a woman looking specifically, we'll see this morning in verses Luke chapter 8, verse 42 through 48, we'll encounter a woman whose condition had really, I mean, it just really encompassed her life. It was crowding her out because of what she was suffering. It was crowding her out and keeping her from living life to its fullest. It was keeping her from uh, just knowing what life is. And really, it was a condition that what we're going to see, it was a condition that was really defining who she is. It's strange that in this particular passage, we know of this woman. It was the woman that had a bleeding disorder. And she's defined by her condition. She doesn't have a name really the only characteristic of her identity that we know is that she was characterized by the woman who had a bleeding disorder for 12 years. Now, it's interesting, and I think that it's really telling of the story that we're going to hear about her. It's really telling that she was defined and identified by her condition, but she refused to allow that to be her future. You know we have uh, we have a problem in our culture that so often we define people by the conditions that they would prefer not to be defined by. Hey, I was uh, in school. We were. Uh, we were made to read this book called The Scarlet Letter. Uh, It's a story of a woman who had uh, an immoral act in her life. And as a result, they made her wear a scarlet colored A on her chest that defined her identity. From that point forward, she was that person. That's what she was known as. And so often we have conditions, we have uh, things in our life that identify us, even when we don't want those to be the identifying features. I found it to be consistent that in a culture where people have so many memory problems, I mean, I've I talk to people all the time that they just forget everything. They can't remember anything. Somehow, even in a culture where people have such terrible memories, uh, it seems commonplace that people never have trouble remembering the things about your life that you wish they would just forget. You know, I mean, they remember everything. You're like, how preaching, that's one of the fun things about preaching is that people rarely remember the things you say that you wish that they remember, but they always remember the things you say that you wish they would never remember. And that's how it is in life. Like people hold on to things, the conditions about your life, what you've been through, what you used to be, and they never want to let it go. You know, and it really really begins to, this point really begins to to strike a nerve. Because some of you have things in your past, some of you have conditions in your life that you wish with all of your heart that culture and community would forget, just like the blood of Jesus washed them away. But there's always a few that want to hold it out in front of you. They want to hold it out not only in front of you, but they want to hold it out over you. And for whatever reason, they will never let you outlive what you were ready to outlive. In this story that we're going to study this morning, there's going to be three points if you're taking notes. We're going to look at this woman's condition. We're going to look at, we're going to look at her confession. And then we're going to look at the call that Jesus makes to her. But we're gonna see a woman today, and here is one of the points that I want you to take away, who refused to let her condition define her. She refused to let her condition crowd her out from experiencing life. We've read the text in Luke chapter eight, verses 40 through 48, particularly, I want us to begin studying verses 42, the second part of verse 42 through 48, and I wanna begin teaching on point one, which is her condition. Now we look at Luke chapter eight, The second part of verse 42, the scripture says, and Jesus went, as Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Now, we could jump into the condition. We're going to get to that in the next verse. But what we need to understand is the context. We've been talking about this. When we're studying God's word, we must remember that the context is what? It is key and it's king. Context is key to understanding what the scripture means to say. And context is king, which means that it trumps whatever you think the scripture ought to say. So what God meant for his word to say takes priority over what you think God's word ought to say. The only way for us to understand that is to understand the context of the passage. So here's the context of the passage. Jesus is in Galilee. He's performing a sequence of healing, uh, of healings, and he's demonstrating his deity and his power over uh, the physical and the spiritual. He has uh, he has performed healings. He has, uh, on this side of the Sea of Galilee, on the Galilean side, he has performed miracles and he's taught parables. And then he has gone across the sea. While he was going across the Sea of Galilee, he performed a miracle. Then he gets to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there he encounters a man who is possessed by a legion of demons. He casts those demons into some pigs. The pigs run down into the water and they drown. And then Jesus, the context of where we are in this particular passage, Jesus comes back across the sea of Galilee. He's on the Galilean side and people are just swarming him. They're they're crowding around him. And why are they crowding around him? Because the guy's performing miracles and people want to get a piece of the miracle. They want a miracle in their own life. And so they're crowding around him. And it's not an accident, the type of language that Luke uses here in verse 42, when he writes, the people were pressing in around him. Some of your translations may say the people were crowding him. That has both a literal description and a figurative demonstration of a word. And the literal description is that people are all around him. They're literally pressing in around him. It is almost a chaotic scene as people are just all directions and all points around him. they're pressing in, trying to get closer and closer to him. And the people that are on the fringes are pressing in closer and closer, trying to get to Jesus Christ. That's the literal description of what's taking place here. But there's a figurative demonstration here. And that is that people are, because there's a crowd, they are suffocating the spiritual life giver, Jesus Christ. Now the figurative image here is that in our lives, There are sometimes crowds of people, whether it be crowds of literal people or crowds of conditions in our life that want to suffocate us out. They want to take the life out of us. And I think it's no accident that Luke uses that specific word in this specific instance before introducing us to this specific woman with her specific condition. We look forward in verse 43 and it says, and there was a woman... There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years, and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed anymore. Now, let's look at her condition, and I want to point out six components of her condition. Number one, her condition uh, her condition brought about ceremonial uncleanness. Okay, in the Jewish faith system. In the old covenant, anyone who was bleeding, uh, if a female was bleeding through natural discharge, she would have been considered ceremonially and religiously unclean, which means that she would have been prohibited from attending worship in the Jewish synagogues or even temples. Even though it was a natural part of the woman's uh, physiology, she would have been prohibited from attending any type of religious gathering until, and you can look back at Leviticus chapter 15, until a period of cleanliness and a procedure of being made clean had been uh, carried out. And so this woman for 12 years, for 12 years has not been able to participate in worship or any religious gathering. Do you all remember covid we were, we were in Mississippi. Mike, were you in Mississippi when co- we had COVID down there? Did y'all, y'all had it here? I just, I didn't know. I mean, I don't want to s- stir up any, you know, I don't want to open up any wounds, but we were, we were part of our church, and I know people hate this, um, and, and there are folks that complained about it. There's still folks that complain about it, but we were one of the churches that made the decision um, for a brief period of time to stop having in-person worship. And I get, folks were so offended about it. Like usual, the folks that complained the most about it were the ones that weren't gonna come anyway. We know, you know. I'm sorry, I just haven't offended anybody today, so I thought I would take my chance. It was was a good shot, right? No, we, we were, seriously, we were some of the, we were one of the churches, like most churches who stopped, worship, uh, stopped having in-person worship. We offered on, online services, but it was just chaotic and nobody knew. But we went just a few weeks, and even having in-person worship, I'm telling, or even having online worship, it just wasn't, like, it just wasn't the same. I mean, like, it was so terrible, like just being isolated was horrible, and it was just for a few weeks. This woman hasn't been able to attend worship in any form or fashion for 12 years. The, her condition is she's ceremonially unclean, but I'll tell you what her, commission had, her condition had led her to be physically diminished. The the scripture tells us about her condition in brief, that she had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, we know she's a woman, and it's likely that this discharge of blood, that this is a hemorrhaging of blood that is uh, what might have originally looked as a natural discharge that a woman has, but it has been excessive and extensive. And you know that when you are bleeding out, whether you're female or not, when you are losing your blood in large amounts, eventually your life is going to be impacted physically. I mean, she's just, she's exhausted. She has no energy to get up and to go because all of her life is just streaming out of her and nobody can stop it. So religiously, she's unclean. Physically, she's diminished. The scripture tells us that financially, she's depleted. The scripture says she spent all of her money on physicians trying to find a cure. And apparently, we can assume from the implied nature of this, that she found many doctors that were willing to help her, willing to attempt to help her, but no one had been successful. But she'd been paying out. She's financially depleted. Her condition is just, 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 it's making her... Almost obscure. It is at best making her invisible. I'll tell you, there's more to it. Not only is she ceremonially unclean and physically diminished and financially depleted, but she's emotionally exhausted. Do you you know what it's like to deal with a condition that you can't seem to get a handle on? Many of you guys know about uh, our story with Jane Kennedy, our youngest daughter, and how she has a sprain condition. And for the four and a half years she's been alive, it's just kind of been a constant battle where we're just jumping from doctor to doctor to doctor. And we thank the Lord that she's doing better now than she ever has been. But I can tell you that being a patient or being a caregiver to a patient is emotionally exhausting, It just wears on you. And this woman for 12 years has been emotionally taxed. She's got to be at the end of herself. Not only is she emotionally exhausted, but she's so socially isolated. Now, remember, in Leviticus chapter 15, we have these rules, these laws about women that have a discharge. And these laws, they seem unfair, but it really is. Uh, it really is logical at that period of time. It protects the culture. It it sets up a, a sanctity of purity for the nation of Israel, and it's really just good hygiene and practice at that period of time uh, for the woman to remain separate but people would also, because because she was unclean, they would always keep her at arm's length lest they touch her and also become unclean. See, it wasn't just her that was unclean, but if you touch someone who is unclean, or if you touch something that is impure, then you also have to go through the process of being made clean again. So as a result, people might occasionally talk to her out of pity, but for the most part, they're going to always keep her at arm's length. So as if her life isn't bad enough, she can't even have a friend group to lean on. I'll tell you, there's one more part that sometimes is overlooked, but it shouldn't be overlooked. And that is, is that she's romantically neglected. Now, if she is bleeding... The context clues of her current condition would suggest that if she's having this bleeding condition, she's probably still in uh, either at the beginning, the middle, or the late stages of childbearing. And I don't, listen, I don't want to be so naive to think that life is always butterflies and that we always just fall in love and that we always live in love. Listen, we've got some newly engaged folks in here, and I'm telling you, they're living on love. Some of y'all remember that? And like, how are you going to pay your bills? I don't know, but we're in love. <laughs> I heard you heard you hit a deer, got a flat tire, totaled your car. Yeah, but we're so in love. <laughs> like, I don't want to be so naive to think that that's all of life. Like, there's dry spells that come with the, the nature of romance. But listen, I've never met a woman that doesn't want to be loved. I met some women I couldn't love, but I've never met a woman that doesn't want to be loved. That's my second time today. All right, it's over. It's over. I got it out of my system. But listen, a young lady, let's assume that she's a young lady, that she's in childbearing years, and for 12 years, she has not been able to entertain any type of romantic relationship. Because let's be honest, during this patriarchal system, like guys want to find a love as well. I mean, it it may be the ancient Near East, but there's still romance in the air. But this... These guys that would have entertained her, they're also gonna want for her to provide an heir to carry on his name. And if they meet up with her and find out, oh wait, she has a bleeding disorder that may prevent her from being able to have a child to carry on my namesake or my legacy, then maybe we ought to stop before we ever get started. 12 years, at least. No romantic relationship, no one pursuing her. Her condition's bad. But I want to tell you something. We're going to learn in her confession that she refused to give up. She refused to let her condition define the remainder of her life. And she made the determination that she was going to go after Jesus Christ. Look at your Bible. Let me read this for you. In verse 44, the scripture says, she came up behind him, Jesus, and she touched the fringe of his garment. Now, in the parallel passage in Mark, it says that she was determined and she had already calculated if she could simply touch his garment, she knew that she was gonna be healed. We read on. She touched the hem of his garment, the fringe of his garment, and immediately, verse 44, immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd surround you and they're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, no, no, no. Someone touched me for I perceived that power has gone out from me. Now, Jesus is demanding that someone step up and step out and say, with a confession, it was me. Jesus was demanding a confession, now look at the, verse, uh, the, the next verse, verse 47, and here we have her confession. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been healed immediately. Now her confession, this is what we need to know. Her confession was truthful. Confession is a critical component to the Christian life. Confession is a necessary component to your sanctification and your ongoing growth. Matter of fact, the Bible tells us that confession is critical. There's a number of scriptures that even point us to this particular point of needing to confess. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, the scripture says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. In James chapter 5, verse 16, the scripture says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13 whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy just 3 examples of many more that could be cited of where confession is presented as a necessary part for the Christian life so why are we not more engaged in practicing confession I think it is because of two things. Number one, we misunderstand what confession is. And two, we are misled in that misunderstanding about confession. You see, the enemy will make us think that confession is all about us spilling the beans about the sin that's in our life so that other people will have things to gossip about. But that's not what confession is. People think that confession is entirely, hey, I'm just gonna spill the beans so that you can judge me with more accurate information. So naturally, we're hesitant to confess. And I'll tell you that I would be, if I knew that the only purpose of me telling you what was going on in my life was so that you would have accurate information to judge me and to gossip about me with, I'm probably not going to confess. I'm probably not going to confess. I'm going to have a personal faith that I always keep private. But that's not what we're called to. We're called to confess. And our confession is, let me tell you what Jesus Christ has done in my life. Now, by nature, in order for you to talk about what Jesus Christ has done in your life, you have to include what he's delivered you from, what he's set you free from, what he's healed you from. But the emphasis is not on, look at what's wrong with me. The emphasis is on, look what he made right about me. Look at what he made right about me. And Christians, we must have a confessional faith. We must have a confessing practice. We must be people, note this, we must be people who have a personal faith but refuse to have a private faith. We must have a faith that we take personal but also a faith that we go public with. And if you have a faith that you try to make personal but also keep private, what's gonna happen is you're going to burn up until the point when you burn out. In the scripture, after Jesus Christ is um, arrested on that night before his crucifixion, Peter, the chief apostle, the one that we see here, the the top guy in the apostles and disciples, he's asked three times if he knows Jesus Christ. And do you know what he does on three occasions? He denies him. He says, I have this personal faith, but I'm going to keep it private. And it eats him up all night long. No wonder we have so many Christians who are being eat up from the inside out. They have this faith in the one true living God. They supposedly have the presence of the living God's Holy Spirit in them, and they're trying to keep him contained. I'm not surprised we have so many Christians who are internally getting burned up by their own privacy. But I'll tell you what happens when you take your faith personally and also make sure to go public with your faith The gospel of Jesus Christ and your willingness to stand publicly with the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the things that Jesus has done in your life, what it will do is it will brighten up your life and it will cause you to shine out. It'll brighten up your life and it'll cause you to shine out. This is what the woman confesses. This is my my analysis of what she confesses. She confesses that she is guilty of three things. She's guilty of three things. Number one, she's guilty of being intentional. She wasn't waiting for someone to ask her if she wants to come and meet Jesus. She wasn't waiting if she, if, waiting for someone to ask her to come to Jesus for healing. She says, I'm going to act before anyone asks me to do anything. She is intentionally going after Jesus Christ. There's something to be said about that in our day and age. If we're going to be guilty of going after anything, why can't we be exposed for going after Jesus Christ? We talk about standing for Jesus Christ, what about pursuing Jesus Christ? And I'm not trying to propagate any type of works-based religion. I'm not trying to deny the fact that God draws us to himself through his Holy Spirit because we're dead in our sins. I'm not trying to deny the fact that Jesus Christ and Christ alone, he took our sins upon himself to the cross, was crucified with those sins, buried in a borrowed grave, and three days later was resurrected by the power of God, and you had nothing to do with it except contribute your sin. I'm not trying to deny that. What I'm simply trying to purport here in this particular message is there's something to be said about pursuing Jesus. Jesus Christ, after he saves you from your sin. I'm trying to make an argument that perhaps the Christian life is better suited for those who don't expect to come back, come in, sit down, prop their feet up, and wait for Jesus to serve us, but the Christian life is more enticing and excellent for those who come into this faith knowing that Jesus Christ has saved them and they chase Jesus for the rest of their life. Not because he can't be caught, but because he's worth it. He's worth being caught. She was intentional. Another thing that she confesses is that she was strategic. A little bit closer to the, to the account that Mark gives us, she says that she went and she knew that all she had to do was touch the hem of her, the hem of his garment, the fringe of his garment, and that she could be healed. In your pursuing Jesus Christ, are you strategically pursuing him? You may not even know what that means. Do you know what you're doing to pursue Jesus Christ? Are you just sort of floating haphazardly around hoping that by coincidence you run into him? Are you strategically pursuing Jesus Christ? How would you even do that? Let me give you a little hint. If you're taking notes, if you write things down, if you want to grow in your faith, here is something for you. I'm not going to give you the answer. I'm going to point you in a direction. You need to study, understand, and know what the spiritual disciplines are. Do you know what the spiritual disciplines are? Christian spiritual disciplines. And I would encourage you to look up a guy named Donald Whitney. You need to know what those are. Dads, if you want to be the husband God's called you to be, And if you want to set the example for what the type of man your daughter should marry, you need to know what the spiritual disciplines are and you should be practicing them. Mothers, if you want to be the wife that God's called you to be, if you want to be the type of woman, setting the example for the type of lady that your sons should marry, you should know the spiritual disciplines and be practicing them. The spiritual disciplines are in fact the application of practices and principles that you put into place to pursue Jesus Christ and to grow in your faith. Donald Whitney, Christian spiritual disciplines. This woman confesses, I was strategic in pursuing Jesus Christ. And here's the third thing that she confesses. I was adamant. I was adamant that I was not gonna miss the moment and I was not going to allow my condition to define me any longer. I was going after Jesus Christ and she confesses. Again, look at verse 47. The, the woman saw that she was not hidden. She, there was still a crowd around, but she recognized that Jesus noticed her. And so she was trembling and she fell down before him. It's a, confession is a frightful thing, a frightening thing. To be exposed is so hard. It's so challenging. It stretches us. Nobody wants to be exposed But she knew that this was her moment and she was adamant, I'm not going to let it pass me by. I'm tired of the life that's behind me and I'm ready for the life that God has in front of me. And I am going to, even with fear, she falls down before him and she declares, she confesses in the presence of all people, not a private ceremony, but a public confession, why she touched Jesus and how she had been healed immediately. She says, listen, this is why I touched him because I have this condition in my life and this is what happened as a result. He healed me instantly. Now I don't want you to miss how Jesus calls her. We've looked at her condition, we've looked at confession. Now I want to draw your attention to verse 48 and how he calls her. And there's two particular points that I wanna bring your attention to In this final point, look at verse 48. This is what he says. He says, number Jesus looks at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Two points that I wanna bring your attention to. There's many more we could study, but two. Number one, based on my study, this is the only time in recorded Bible history, this is the only time that's recorded in writing where Jesus addresses a person as daughter. Now, I I could be wrong. I doubt I am. But based on my study, this is the only time that's recorded where Jesus identifies someone, calls them daughter. Now, this is powerful for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's powerful because before, her identity was based off of what? Her condition. But now, because she's been healed by Jesus Christ, she has a new identity, and that identity is daughter. She's in the family now. Dads. I got any dads in the room? How many dads? Just just quickly, show me your hand. Raise your hand. If you're a dad and you have a daughter, would you raise your hand? Now, many of you know my family. Uh, my wife, Carly, I love her. She is the most beautiful woman on the face of the earth, and I am crazy obsessed with her. Um, if your wife is beautiful, well, she can fight out second place with all the other women, but my wife's got first place. We've got three children. I've got a 10-year-old named Scott. I have an eight-year-old named Everett, and I love them, but they're sons, so like, just stay alive. You get it. But but Carly and I's third child, our baby is Jane Kennedy, a little girl. There's a saying among uh, about the relationship between dads and daughters. The saying is she has him wrapped around her finger. Have y'all heard that before? It means that she can have whatever she wants. She can do whatever she wants. And like the intention is not that I'm trying to spoil my daughter. I mean, it's going to happen. That's not the intention, though. The intention is that she has my heart. She has me. Everything I have, she can have it because she's Jane Kennedy. It's my baby. my baby. It, it, If you, I've learned this from some mentors. I haven't experienced it entirely yet, but I've learned this from some mentors. If you're a dad with a young daughter, if you're young in this parenting game of daughters, you need to just go ahead and get a heart that says, I'm gonna let them have everything I've got because they're gonna take it anyway. So you might as well just enjoy giving it to them my daughter, she's got me wrapped around her finger. Like, I love her. I'm gonna protect her. I'm gonna do everything for her. Like, I want her to be well. The fact that she's got a medical condition just amplifies my intent to care for her and my attention to her. And like, I love her. I want her to do well. I want her to be, uh, I want her to be prosperous. I want her to be healthy. I want all of these good things for her. And, and I fear for the man's life whenever the day comes that someone asks me if he can date my daughter. Like, you will, you will never see a pastor call a deacons meeting so fast <laughs> as when that, that guy calls me, texts me, Instagrams me, probably sends something through social media asking if he can take my daughter out, and I'm going to have deacons. He's going to have to sit be- before an inquisition. <laughs> and it's not that they won't be allowed to go by themselves wherever they go, but there will be deacons strategically placed every 10 yards from my house to that place they go and back home. Amen, church. It's the way it ought to be. She has whatever she wants because she's got all of my attention. And Jesus sees this woman and he calls her daughter. And when he calls her daughter, he says, you're no longer defined by the condition you used to have. Now you're defined as one of my children. And by the way, because I'm calling you daughter, you might as well take it to the bank. You've got me wrapped around your finger and whatever you need, I got it. It's a big statement. But there's another statement at the close of the passage. He says, your faith has made you well. And he says to her something that we might overlook, but we shouldn't miss the importance of. He says, go in peace. Does your Bible say it? He says, your faith has made you well, go in peace. That word peace means go in completeness, go in whole. To be at peace means that all the pieces are together. Now this woman's condition This woman's condition could be described as constantly losing yourself. She was bleeding out physically, financially, socially, romantically. She was losing. There was was nothing about any part of her life that looked like completeness. And Jesus said, now you're my daughter. Now you're healed. Now you go knowing a life that you didn't know before. And how could that be? How could it be that she could go being complete when that was never her life before? It was because Jesus gave up himself so that she could be who he wanted her to be. Remember, he said, who touched me? And they said, well, everybody's been touching you. There's a crowd around you. They're all pulling around you. And he says, no, someone touched me in a different way because I perceived that it cost me something. I lost power. It cost me something. And I'll tell you, friends, that's exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is that you and I are dead in our sins. We are incomplete in our relationship with God and in our life. But God was willing to give up whatever it cost so that you could be made whole again. And the question is, the question is we move into a time of invitation and response. Will you, like the woman, will you refuse to let your condition crowd you out? And will you be adamant, I am going to pursue Jesus Christ. I am going after him. I'm going to invite our worship team to come forward. If you were leading us or helping us with the invitation, I want to invite you to come forward. Our ministers, if you're one of our ministers that will be helping us with the invitation, or if you're one of our prayer team members, I want to invite you to go ahead, get up and come forward. As a matter of fact, if you would, everyone just stand where you are. We're going to move into a time of invitation. And this is how I want to invite you to respond today. If you are tired of whatever condition has defined your life, if you are tired of that and you are ready for the Lord to give you wholeness, to give you healing, to give you salvation, I want to invite you to step out and step forward. Now, I'm not promising that if you walk down this aisle and you have a physical disability that we're gonna lay our hands on you and that you're just gonna walk away healed. Do I believe that God can still perform miracles? I do because the scripture tells me that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so the only way that God can stop being capable of performing miracles is if God stops being God and that ain't happening. But I'm not promising that if you walk down here that you're gonna get healed physically. God chooses and wills for that to happen. We're gonna celebrate. But what I am calling you to is I'm calling you to step out and to step forward and confess that Jesus is doing something in my life and I am responding. There's gonna be ministers down front and if that's you, whether you need to come forward to be saved or come forward to be baptized or come forward to join the church, or maybe you want to come forward and say, you know what, I'm, I don't know what it is that I need, but I need God to do a work in my life. And I feel him calling me and I am responding. We want to pray with you. We want to encourage you. We want to hug your neck and we want you to know you're not alone. We are ready to help you, to walk with you and to care for you. So whether you're in the front and the back or in the balcony, if the Lord is leading you to respond, now is the time to do so. I wanna lead us in a word of prayer and then we're gonna sing. And when we begin singing after this prayer, if we can pray with you, pray over you, encourage you, help you, would you step out of your aisle and would you step down, take one of us by the hand and let us see God do a miracle in your life. Lord, we thank you for the morning and now is the time, God, that you've called us to respond. Lord, and so we pray, I pray specifically now, God, for those that are in this room. There are some people who are tired of being defined by whatever condition has been following them around and they're ready for a new name. They're ready for a new identity. They're ready, Lord, to walk out of this place made whole through Jesus Christ. And so God, I pray that as you have moved in mighty ways among these people, that you would do it again. And that you would lead us, God, to step out by faith in obedience and to confess publicly that Jesus is doing something in our lives. So Lord, help us now. As we sing, help us now as we respond. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The invitation is open. Who needs to respond?